read it. All right. So this is uh, December 9th, 2012. Our message today is called Lap Dog. Anybody want to be a lap dog? Don't answer that. Turn with me to Philippians 2. We're going to learn to be lap dogs today. Generally speaking, if somebody called you a lap dog, it would be the worst kind of insult. They would be saying that you are some suburbanite's toy that sits in a lap and is good for nothing and serves no purpose. They might be speaking about you in derogatory terms. Let us look at our Christ here. Philippians 2. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. There is no lower station that a man could fall to, but he was not just a man. The Word was with God and the Word was God, and yet he tabernacled among us. What a step down in station, friends. In the heavenly caste system, in the heavenly hierarchy, what a tremendous step down. That God would become a man, and then not just any man, a servant of all men. And then not just a servant, one that was so humble, he submitted to death. And then not just death, the most gruesome, agonizing death that you could possibly have. The kind reserved for criminals. 2 Corinthians 4.11, I've been quoting to you very often. says, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. I want to tell you that the gospel never moves forward without sacrifice. It never moves forward without cost. We've heard all of our lives that Jesus paid the cost. We've heard all of our lives that He paid it all. When you belong to Jesus and you're a part of the body of Jesus, a member of Christ, you join Him in paying that cost. You pay it every time you crucify your flesh and take up His will to carry His cross. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross, the scripture says. You must step down from your dream. You must step down from your desire of the moment. And you must crucify it so that you can take up God's cause. There is no other call to the Christian. There is no other purpose to the Christian. Anything that is focused upon self-centeredness, sacrificeless, Riches or pleasure is a distraction, friends. Did you hear the song, Turn Your Eyes Toward Jesus? Look full into His wonderful face, and the things of earth, they will grow strangely dim. Not more enticing, strangely dim. You're no longer fascinated with what everyone else is fascinated with. You're no longer longing for the things that they long for. Because you found something better. A more lasting possession. 
You've exchanged slavery for life and are now a life servant to the King of Kings. There is no other position for the Christian. The idea that I am in full-time Christian ministry and that you are not is absurd. There is no other kind of Christian except the full-time Christian ministry. Amen. That's right. He either has all of us or he has none of us. For our God is a jealous God and he will suffer no rivals. Amen. All of us or none of us. I pray he has all of you this day. Turn with me to Mark 15. Say there when you're there. I'm going to wait for the rest of you to get there. Talk to me in church. This is not the frozen chosen. It's not the sage on the stage. You don't sit and get entertained in here. This is the huddle. This is the huddle where you find out God's plan for your life. And then you go out and carry it out. And if you will not carry it out, you don't belong in the huddle. That's just the way it works. I'm not excluding you. No one is excluding you except you exclude you. The only one that the Lord God cannot use is the one that will not be used. But to the willing. Oh my goodness. To as many as who would call upon His name. He gives the rights to be sons of God. Sons of God in Hebrew means those who act like Him. Those who have His character. Those who have His passion. Is your eye on what the Lord's eye is on this day? I asked you to go to Mark 15, yeah? Amen. Oh my goodness, look at 25. It was the third hour when they crucified Him. You know, that is one of those words that has become so churchy. It's where you get the word excruciating from in English. At the third hour, they put him in an excruciating situation. The written notice, the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. It seems that the righteous are always lumped into a category with thieves. Always lumped into a category with wrongdoers. And who puts them there? Those who sit in their neat little religious palaces with perfect theology and absolutely no deeds. Jesus was dying in the religious capital of the world at the hands of the most religious people that ever walked the planet. They had volumes of scripture memorized but did not recognize the acts of God when they were before their face. I want to tell you something, friends. If you join in any one of the ministries that are laid before you, you see Jesus in that ministry. Amen. You see humble, ordinary, broken people who have crucified their desire to sleep late, their desire to spend on themselves, who have crucified their desire for entertainment and pleasure. They have died to this world. And you see something of Jesus in it. Their grammar may not be perfect. Their doctrine may not be as pretty as some. But their deeds will last for an eternity. And given the choice for the former or the latter, I choose the latter. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. It doesn't say that they handed him insults. It doesn't say they sent him an email 
or a text message, or they didn't like what he posted on Facebook. Hurled. Think about that. With all the force they could muster, with all the viciousness that they could muster, with all the vile, putrid, yucky, devilish spirit that was in the religious people of the day, they tore him down. And why? Because he went about healing the sick? Because he went about doing good for everyone? What about that is so convicting? What about that is so difficult? Well, if he's doing it, why am I sitting at home? So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Wonder why their minds went there so quickly. A sacrifice is being made. A sacrifice is being It's hard. It's excruciating. It's torturous. And where do their minds go? Save yourself. This is where the religious mind always goes. The preservation of self in the first church of self. Jesus is a footnote to satisfy the curiosity of the critics. But life is about self. Christianity is a revolution, friends. It is a radical departure from self. It is a crucifixion of self. Jesus had no thought of saving himself. He had every thought of pouring himself out. He stepped down from the highest station and went to the lowest station to give his life away for the kingdom. How can we be numbered with him if we do any less? We made a small step once a year. Every once in a while, we feel sorry for the poor people, so we'll stop. You know, one time I gave $10 to such and such. What's the latest cause? Can we go join the latest cause to make ourselves feel better? All the time, saving ourselves. Christianity is a reckless abandonment of self. I believe that Jesus paid the very greatest price and he deserves no less but reciprocation from me. Oh my goodness. I preached last week. I want to pay the full price. 40 people listened to it online. They probably clicked on it and clicked off as fast as they possibly could. Maybe all 39 were my wife clicking on it to make me feel better. I don't know. It seems that America has no tolerance left for a sacrificial message. But there is no other kind. Anything else is a false gospel. Anything else is simply parlor tricks, pretty sanctuaries, stained glass for the appearance of heaven. But the kingdom of God is not made up of those who hide in the spiritual safety deposit box while others die. In the same way, the chief priest and the teachers of the law mocked him. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times in my life people have mocked what God was doing in my life. Oh, what's the name of your, what do you call it again? Yes, your, your study group? No, our church, the Church of the Living God. Do you have a sanctuary? That's a place you keep birds. The church of the living God is the people. Amen. Where's your church again? We're called Life Changing Ministries and Fellowship. Well, where do you meet? In my living room. Do you know what it's like to go invite everybody that you work with to a service in your living room? You know what they think? He's a cult. 
Why? Jesus never met in a stained glass building. Jesus never met where there were pews. He never saw a steeple, not in his whole life, except the one the devil wanted to throw him off of. We have an idea of what Christianity is, and I want to tell you, like Jim Baker, we were wrong. Christianity is the sacrifice of all. This idea of free, 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 free is less than half the truth. You cannot earn your salvation. It is a free gift. And from the moment you receive it, you owe him everything that you have. Nothing is yours anymore. Amen. Oh, man, we agree well. We agree well. Nothing is mine. It's all Jesus. Would you let the guy sitting on your left borrow it, drive it, live in it, eat it? Uh, you might. you got pretty people sitting on your left and right. But what about anybody the Lord says, give it to? Well, of course I would, but see, the Lord wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me. Uh, I mean, he, the only time we compare ourselves to Abraham is after we heard that the angel stopped him from dropping the knife. It's easy when you know how the story ends, friends. There's no faith in that. If you open to the last chapter of the book, there's no faith in that. Faith, trust, is put on the line when you have no idea how it will work out and you dare to risk all for him who paid all for you. This is saving faith. And it's not an event in time. It is a life of events. It is a passion that fills us with the character of God. I want to compel you by the Spirit of God today to leave comfort. To get good and afflicted by the Holy Ghost. Because they're dying all around us. They are dying all around us. There are people sitting in this room that you cannot pick out because they're people just like you. They go home to sleep under a bridge. And they go home to sleep under a bridge because... We are a nation full of people who profess but are not possessed by God's power. Because if we really have the kingdom, if we are really possessed of the Spirit of God, then how could we say no? He didn't say no to any of us when we were in nasty shape. And He found us. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked Him among themselves, He saved others. Oh my goodness, what an endorsement. The religious community of his day, while they are killing him, what did they say? He saved others. Oh my boy, if they knew what they were saying. That's absolutely right. He saved others. But God did not save those religious people. All of their quoting, all of their believing, that amounted to no deeds, and so James says it's not real faith. He did. He saved others. Amen. Man, man, which category do we want to be in? This is one time I don't want to be the other guy. Maybe I do want to be the other guy. He saved others. But what's that last part say? But he can't save himself. Oh, they got the first half right and the last half wrong. He did save others, yes? Yes. Could he save himself? Yes. He decided not to. What choice will you make? You can save others. 
But you can't save them and save yourself. You can't. The gospel requires you to be crucified daily. The gospel requires the reckless abandonment of self. The gospel requires death to be at work in you so life can be at work in them. You cannot save them and yourself. So tell me, what do you choose? Because your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, who abandoned it all for the glory of God. And man, man, I wish our amen was a, a binding legal contract. I wish we treated our amen like we treat our mortgage payments. I wish our amen was just like our promise. So that is kind of what it is, though, isn't it, you theologians? Isn't amen, so be it unto God? Isn't that what it is? Isn't it like saying, yes, Lord, a thousand times over? Yes, yes, yes. That's what amen is. But boy, how our religious terms simply become religious language. How quickly do we jump up if we know it costs us our life? I've never listened to a sermon, but I heard a piece of a John Hagee sermon. It was Memorial Day, and he said, Friends, we stand before you in this grand cathedral, and boy, it's grand. And if it cost you your life to be here, we could meet in a pup tent. This was a pastor speaking to his own congregation. We're doing better than that. We're a little better than a tent now, but our attrition rate's not quite that large. When you have more than 50% of your congregation that's willing to risk their life to go to a people in Mexico, you know what I call that? A good start. But I don't think we rest. I don't think we relax until every man, woman, and child in here, conscience screams out, yes, I will abandon myself for the gospel. Turn with me to Matthew 16. What gets in the way, friends? What is it? Well, is it horse racing? Is it gambling? Is it the internet? Is it your iPod? What is it? D.O. Moody had a conversation with C.T. Studd's father. I think his name was Edward. If it's not, we're just going to call him Mr. Studd. So Mr. Studd says, Mr. Moody, if I become a Christian, will I have to give up gambling? Will I have to give up card playing? Will I have to give up hunting? Will I have to give up those things? Dale Moody said, well, if you go to horse races, you're a gambler, and I cannot see a gambler inheriting the kingdom. As for the other things, do what you like. He said, really, I can do the other things? He said, well, I want to challenge you. If you see one soul saved with your life, I won't have to tell you not to do them. You'll never want to do them again. Because your full-time passion will be spreading the kingdom of God. The things of earth will grow strangely dim. Strange to everybody else, but known to every real believer. We cannot be in love with the world and in love with our master at the same time. Matthew 16, 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Peter, who he had complimented. Peter, who knew the right answers. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. What must we abstain from? Give us the rule book. Where are the lists? Could please somebody in Springfield, somebody in Rome, somebody at our headquarters just tell us what we must do. You have to abandon the things of men. 
You have to have a living, breathing, moving relationship with the Lord. The kind where you wake up wanting daily bread from Him and not from somebody on the street. Amusement. Carnival. Flesh festivals. Man, we pipe it right into our living rooms now. We're so infected with the disease of entertainment, we no longer even know what it is to hear from God. We cannot have in mind the things of God and the things of men. The 8th chapter of Romans teaches us that they are contrary to one another. They are in conflict with each other. The 6th chapter of Galatians teaches us whichever one you sow to from that nature, you will reap. And somehow we indict God. We treat Him as if His word is not true. Because we try to maintain both. Oh, how good it would feel to totally surrender. How good it would feel to have absolutely no compromise. But something that doesn't feel so good comes before that. Before there is power, there is repentance. Before the kingdom comes repentance. Before the resurrection comes the crucifixion. Oh, I tell you, Christian, you have to invite the Lord to search your heart. You have to invite Him to examine your ways as David did. And then you have to put to death what does not belong, what wars against Him. And you say, but this in itself is not wrong. So and so does it. My pastor does it. Whatever He says is wrong for you is wrong for you. Whatever He tells you to do, He meant for you to do. It doesn't matter what they're doing. He saved others, but He cannot. Save himself. And we think we can. The things of men. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone, say anyone. Anyone. Say it again. Anyone. Would come after me, he must deny himself. This is the missing link in Christianity. Christianity has had an evolution. <laughs> it's, it's, it's had a transformation. It's gone from the bloody cross right into the beautiful cathedral, right down to the, to the attitude that God wants me rich. What a lie from the depths of hell. Why would He want you rich? It's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom. Anybody in here want to ride a camel through the eye of the needle today? It is possible. Yes, is it possible for you? How you been doing with it? Jesus, Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us, mighty God, for our distraction. Forgive us, mighty God, for reducing the power of the gospel to an intellectual faith of agreement. When our hearts begin to break, when our lives begin to change, when you begin to do things differently tomorrow than you did today, then we have a real and active and living faith. Friends, if you haven't changed your mind about anything in the Word, you're either not reading it or you're not growing. All living things change. They grow. We accept a dry, dead, stale version that inoculates us from the real power of the kingdom of God. And we elect for ourselves heroes. The great healing evangelist, he will do it. The great mega building in the mega man, in the mega building, surely if he were here, he could do it. 
The gospel doesn't work that way. If it did, he would not have filled a carpenter with all of himself in the first century. He would have picked a mega man and a mega building, somebody like Augustus Caesar, that the whole world will worship this month without knowing it. I gave everybody a copy of the DCD. <laughs> if none of you are offended, it's because none of you have read it. It is extraordinarily offensive, and I like it. I love it. It can fix my heart. The man was born in 1860, and he lived like a titan of the faith. How many of you have bulletins in here? Hold up your bulletin. What does it look like to abandon self? Open it. Look. The big house in the picture is the house he grew up in. His name was C.T. Studd. But when his daddy got saved, and later he got saved, he finished his life in his 70s in the tent, pictured in the top left-hand corner. He inherited what today would be millions of dollars. He said he'd rather die trusting in the Lord. Oh my goodness, did he have a heart for Africa? <laughs> he changed the shape of that continent. Because he dared to abandon all. There's a quote there. You can read that at home. I want to give you something else. The best training for a soldier, he said. The best training for a soldier of Christ is not merely a theologi theological college. They always seem to turn out sausages of varying length, tied at each end. Without the glorious freedom a Christian ought to abound in and rejoice in. You see, when in hand-to-hand -hand conflict with the world and the devil, neat little biblical confectionery is like shooting lions with a pea shooter. One needs a man who will let himself go and deliver blows right and left, hard as he can hit, trusting in the power of the Holy Ghost. It's experience, not preaching, that hurts the devil and confounds the world. This training is not that of schools, but of the marketplace. It's the hot, free heart and not the balanced head that knocks the devil out. Nothing but a forked lightning Christian will count. A lost reputation is the best degree for Christ's service. Oh, they thought he was out of his mind. And he probably was. But I can assure you he's standing in the kind of glory that we profess. It's not so much the degree of arts that is needed, but that of hearts, loyal and true, that love not their lives to death, large and loving hearts which seek to save the lost multitudes rather than guard the 99 well-fed. Oh, where are our hearts, saints? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you saw somebody saved this year because I don't want to embarrass myself. It's my job to teach you. And somehow or another, we've drifted from our aim. We've decided that if we can collect people in the building, we've done the work of God. That's how you get where churches have gotten. The power of the gospel is the demonstration of the Spirit's power in a changed life. <laughs> he who saves souls is wise. Wise. What if we don't save souls? The, uh, I don't remember. Unwise. Thank you for giving me a politically correct way to say a raving stupid idiot. 
I guess it doesn't work if I go ahead and say it, does it? <laughs> C.T. Studd had axioms in his life. He said, funds are low again. Hallelujah. That means God trusts us enough to leave us with his reputation in our hands. Is this what you say when funds are low? The best cure for discouragement or qualms is another daring plunge of faith. He put that on the back of his book. The best cure for discouragement or qualms is another daring plunge of faith. Not downloading another four books, buying another gallon of Bluebell and hiding in your room. A daring plunge of faith. You want to feel good about yourself? Do something that's hard to do. And do it for the glory of God. And if you fall down, get up and do it again. And if it takes you 10 or 11 years to amass five people, then spend those 10 or 11 years working. It builds character. And that character, it'll give you hope. It really will. It'll tell you that even if all forsake, he never will. It'll tell you that no matter what you endure, there's glory on the other side. All that we could learn to endure. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Oh my goodness. The quote in your bulletin is one that is going to become an axiom for the church. I believe in a masculine holiness. C.T. Stella just gave me the words to describe it. I believe the battle is already won if we will simply commit ourselves to the right position. I'm not interested in the sickly stuff and talk of dainty words and pretty thoughts. I want that masculine holiness. Come on, does anybody want holiness? Anybody want the power of God? You know where it's found? In the reckless loss of self. We don't need self-mortification. We don't want you to hit yourself. We don't want you to bite your fingernails. We don't want you to treat your flesh harshly. We want you to seek the kingdom and his righteousness at the expense of everything else, and it'll all work out. The kingdom and his righteousness. We cannot have one without the other. Kingdom and righteousness go together. They hold hands and kiss in the street. Faithfulness springs up. Righteousness looks down. This is the kingdom of God. I would like to be men and women who are distinguished by exceptional qualities rather than degrees. By exceptional actions rather than exceptional theories. I'm just going to tell you I spent years in the marketing world. And at one time was responsible for 14 physical therapy clinics in this town. All of this without a marketing degree. And I could tell the men that I met that had marketing degrees immediately. Because the things that they peddled did not work. It's your Christianity theory. Or do you speak from your personal experience? Are you a man with an argument? Are you a man that has had the experience? Smith Wigglesworth said that the man with the experience is not at the mercy of the man who merely has an argument. And I agree. In here we have very few skeptics. In here we mostly have people who are more than willing to agree. But let us not dull ourselves to sleep thinking that in agreement we have done anything. We agree when we go carry it out. We agree when we rescue. We agree when we see people saved. We agree when we stretch out in daring faith. 
We do not agree simply by going, uh-huh. That doesn't make us a Christian any more than eating at McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. Turn with me to Judges, uh, how about Daniel 6? Daniel's hiding in my Bible. There. And when you theologians tell me what page it's on. I had no idea what size 8 font was going to do to me when I got this Bible. But needless to say, I study the word carefully now. Verse 3. Are you there? There. Come on, y'all wake up. Are you there? there? If you're sleepy, stand up. If you're really sleepy, run around the room. Do whatever it takes. Do not sleep in the house of God. The scripture says, Arise, O sleeper. Let Christ's light shine upon you. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Oh my. There was something about Daniel that was so exceptional that although there were 120 satraps, this little Jewish boy was distinguished among them all. I wonder what it could be. What did Daniel have in him? When we have the qualities that Daniel has, when we have the Spirit of God moving in us with the reckless abandonment of self, you know what? Our king will set us over the whole kingdom. Right now, we might not be fit to rule the one square foot we're standing in because we don't rule our own lives. But I tell you what, we learn to master sin, to crave holiness, righteousness, and to be obedient when he speaks. Then the kingdom expands from your own heart and life to your household, and from your household to the whole nation. But it won't work for anybody if it's not working for you, friends. You hear me? My favorite line, I have a lot of favorite lines in this movie. My daddy loved the outlaw Josie Wales. And in that movie, there's a, a snake oil salesman. And he's telling everybody all that it will do. It cures arthritis. It cures blindness. It cures everything. The old Indian looked up and said, then you drink it. I want to see how your Christianity is working for you before I let you instruct me on how it should work for me. Is that fair? How's it working for you, saints? Are you blessed by your own right arm? Are you blessed by the heavens? And how would you know the difference? I work hard for everything I have. Well, then you have everything you work for. I want to give away everything I have so that whatever I have, he gave me. And I'd like it to be a continual process. I'd like to see if I can outgive him knowing that I can't, but that it pleases him to watch me try. I'm going to tell you this next year, we're going to build a bigger sanctuary, not for the sake of having a bigger sanctuary. In fact, we're going to leave it rough, rugged, splinters, concrete. But because while the neat, the comfortable, the rich may not come, 
prisoners, poor, downtrodden, distressed, discontented, they will all come. And my Father loves them. My Father loves them. And I love them. Theirs is the kingdom. Theologians call it God's affection for the poor. It's funny, we can identify it, we don't possess it. But we're going to. That's the direction the flight's going. Might be too late for you, you're already on board. If you jump off now, I don't know where you'll land, friends. The whole kingdom. I want to digress for a second. Luke 12, 32. Actually, put it on the screen while they're in Daniel. Luke 12, 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. <laughs> it's almost like he was talking to us. He didn't say, do not be afraid, mega church, because Jesus never had one. He didn't say, do not be afraid, super popular pastors, because Jesus never was one and never called one. He called the discontented, the distressed, the chief of sinners. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Oh, that sounds good to hear, doesn't it? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. But it's mine. I worked for it. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there we have it. Our treasure is in the collection of things and of ourselves. The preservation of self. How could we know that? Because our lives would be defined by giving our life away if our treasure was in the kingdom. You'll never build a big church like this. I, uh, I might be a failure forever in everyone's eyes except the Lord's. And you know what? I can live with that. Like Joseph, I decided I would rather the favor of my father than my brothers. How'd that work out for him? Well, it depends on which decade we're speaking about, doesn't it? Back to Daniel 6. Set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government and affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him. Come on, saints. Is there something in your life that the devil is always speaking to, trying to seduce you away from your devotion to Jesus? Is there corruption in you that, like Russ, no matter how many times you sand it off, it seems to keep growing back? Is there such a compromise in your life that you have gold wedges hidden under a mat in your house and are liable for destruction? Because Daniel passed the test. The most ardent critics of his could find... No corruption in it. The abandonment with self starts with the abandonment of sin. And if you don't get free from those vices, then you will never be free to follow Jesus. How do I get free, Pastor? I've been struggling. I've been trying. We crucify the flesh. We kill its desires. There is no easy way out. By the power of the Holy Ghost, we invite Him to crush us. There is no other way. In fact, it's excruciating. Not very many people answer that altar call. But it's the one that saves. 
It's the one that sets free. It's the one that doesn't window dress the issue while leaving rottenness inside. You know what happens here. A decree is made. They said the only way we'll ever trap this guy is if we use the king's own words to trap him. Oh, what a compliment. What if the only way you're ever going to trap Derek, what if the only way you're ever going to get him is if he's confused about God's word? Man, if we live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, if the only thing that could be said about us is if we thought God said do it, we would do it. And we might have turned out to have been wrong. Oh, the religious world will mock us. They'll throw insults at us. They'll stand back and say they knew better. But we'll live a life of daring trust, won't we? They could find no corruption in him. So they devised a plan to trap him by the king's own word. I got a little news for you. He was a friend of a king on earth and a friend of a king in the heavens. So. How do you think that king is going to feel when he finds out you tried to trap him in his own word? Look at verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. <laughs> so tell me, is your Christian faith the kind that goes home and closes the windows and pulls the curtains? That turns off the light and says, I'm a Christian and this is a scary day. Don't be anybody come to my door. Are you the kind that goes and pulls back the blinds? Says, I want everybody to look in. I'm unashamed before men. I am unashamed before men of my Father in heaven. He went to an open window and he stared at Jerusalem, the one place on earth where God's name was said to dwell. And three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. Catch this line, friends. Just as he had done before. You know how Daniel knew that he was going to be okay in the lion's den? He didn't wait till he was in the lion's den to pray. It was his daily habit, three times a day. He knew the price of his prayer, friends. He knew it. It was his life. But every real believer has already decided to give their life. They don't care. What are you going to do? Threaten me with the power of God. As soon as he heard, it's almost like he was daring to give his life away. Oh, my goodness, friends. On the linear timeline, we put the cross in the middle. Is Daniel to the left of it or the right of it? Before Jesus' example, Daniel looked into the law of God and he saw a reckless abandonment of self that righteousness might come. He saw the grace and mercy of God that is revealed in all of his word. And he lived it in front of the world. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. When your enemies come to you, how do they find you? Defiant? Ready to take it into your own hands? Or on your knees begging God for help because you have no resources. You gave them all the way in this cause. It's a funny thing and I'm as tempted as you are to do it. When the need comes and the money's not in the bank account, what is the first thought you have? Well, I got a credit card. You need to start calling those things devil cards. And if your credit card is meeting all of your needs, at what price? 
Is it really just an excuse to not live by faith? Oh, I know good and well. You might not be able to book a flight. You might not be able to rent a car. I live in the same place you live. But you know what I'm speaking of. When it's crunch time, do we drop to our knees or do we just pull a different color card? Verse 13. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. It's like he cares nothing for his life, king. There's no corruption in him. His prayer life was prior to the trouble. He had already decided to pay whatever price because the kingdom is worth it. Oh, listen to what the pagans say about him. Look at verse 16. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into a lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve on a part-time basis, may your king, whom you serve continually. This is the praise of a pagan. You know what? Even the world recognizes when somebody perseveres. Even the world looks and recognizes they don't give up. They don't quit because the weather's bad. Even a pagan can see persistence is faith. That's why Jesus used it in so many of his parables. A shameless audacity for the things of God, Michael Hutchinson. You know, Michael will call me first thing in the morning. And if he doesn't get me, he'll stop by. And if I'm not there, he'll call me again. And at some point during the day, Michael is going to find me. And I love it. He knows that God put us here for a reason. And he knows there are things that we have to share with each other to make it. He knows that. And he doesn't really much care who he offends, who he wakes up, or what happens. He just wants it. It's almost like he lives the things he preaches. Oh, man, that we could live the things that we preach. If you were brought before that court, would they say, Ray, who serves God continually, Elizabeth, who serves God continually, or would they say, Eric, who serves God when the weather is nice, when the cause is popular, when you're well-funded, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Look at verse 23. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. Of course God came through for him. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted. And God, I want to tell you our wounds are self-inflicted. Our wounds are because we tried to do for ourselves what God said. Give up on trying and do what I tell you to do. Our wounds are self-inflicted because we think in the preservation of self we'll have enough, and you don't. We think in the preservation of self, not risking too much, playing it safe, having a well-balanced life. Look, I'm going to ask you a favor. You know, y'all know I don't want to sin? Okay, three of you know I don't want to sin. What do the rest of you think? <laughs> That's a fair question. We all know I sin. Go ahead and say yes. It'll make me feel better for you to say yes yeah. to that. You want to help me sin or help me not sin? Which would you prefer? Don't walk up to me and ask me where the balance is in any more of my statements. 
Don't come up to me, look me in the eye and say, but pastor, where's the balance in this? I'm not looking for a balance. I'm looking for something that's recklessly out of balance. Eric is not planning for his retirement. Eric is not laying up for some other day. Eric is spending his life, and I don't want to be balanced. And if you do, I will always make you uncomfortable, and I'm good with that. How balanced was Jesus? How balanced were the apostles? Where's the balance in that? Hear from God and quit dwelling in fear. Maybe we could trust Him and give our lives away and find real life. Where's the balance in that? Where's the balance in giving your life away? There's no balance in it. We're altogether out of balance. And so was Jesus and every other real man of God. The religious people probably had perfectly balanced lives, though. You know, first jar says, do not love the world or anything in the world. How are we doing with that one? Turns <laughs> me to Judges 7. I want to die trusting my God. But first I have to live trusting Him. Everybody's sure that like John Wayne, they will have that macho bravado on that day. It should cause you serious concern. If you think that while standing in the calm, you will find the heavenly faith and power. And you haven't done well in the calm, what's going to happen in the dead storm? Hmm? If you run with men and are worn out, what happens when the horses enter the arena? Are you hearing me say, there's an escalation going on in the kingdom, a realignment going on, and southwest Houston is the center of it, I am sure. So, well, that's arrogant. No, it's God's choice. Something is happening here. And if we don't do good in relative comfort, in relative ease, how are we going to do in affliction? I'll be trained by the Holy Ghost now. Jesus himself said the love of most will grow cold. If there's 120 people in here today, what is most? It's something over 61, isn't it? The love of most is growing to go cold. Well, I'm sure we're different. We're a remnant. Make your calling and election sure by living out your faith. It's good. Put your fruit on the tree for display for everyone. Let your light shine before men that they might glorify your Father in heaven. Quit hiding behind neatly packaged biblical confectionaries that never did damage to the devil. I've been so oppressed and so anointed. Say, how can you have both? Because there is a war going on in the Stevens household. I'm warring for my children. I'm warring for this ministry. This morning I was so mad I could spit, but it wouldn't have done me any good. You know what? Healed, hurt, mad, happy, sad, depressed, encouraged makes no difference to me. I'm moving forward. My course is set. One of the things that C.T. Studd says in that book, he said the French withdrew at Waterloo. They believed they owned their horses and they wanted to protect them. So they went back home. And the order was given to a little French drummer boy. Sound the retreat! He said, sir, I never learned that tune. And he sounded charge instead. Oh, that you could learn from a little drummer boy. Where'd I tell you to go? Judges 7. Then let's go to Judges 7. I'll at least keep my word. <laughs> 
I'm not going to ask you if you're mad. I'm going to ask you if you're convicted. Anybody convicted? Anybody going to use that godly conviction to bring change in our lives? I tell you, the Stevens have yet begun to defile ourselves. We can get even more undignified than this. When I see what the Lambs are doing, when I see what the Harpers are doing, the Vincents are doing, it spurs me on. And you know what? I will not be outdone by my students. It's not going to happen. I'm going to run at a pace that they have to run faster to overrun me. And there will be a day they catch me, but it will not be today. Come on, where is your desire to run for the crown? How do we sit, cross our arms, and go home and watch football? How do we do that while our brothers are out ministering to crack addicts, preaching in prisons, ministering to the homeless? Well, it's just not my calling, you know. Well, what is the calling of a Christian, friend, at least the variety that you come from? What is that? The calling of comfort? calling of self-indulgence? I think that's some other Christ. Judges 7, early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Who thinks like that? Who does that? When we move that pile of wood. That's right. Praise God, I have brothers. I wasn't there. <laughs> Actually, I was the first two times. See where it's at. The third time we moved that pile of wood. How many people moved it? Mike, how many? Six. That's too many, man. Why didn't you do it yourself? Why didn't you look at those other five men and say, Ah, if the six of us move this, then it will just be something men will do. Why don't as many of you as are scared go home? Maybe he did. They wouldn't go home. Maybe he said, As many of you as love the world, go home. We don't need you. Closed his eyes and opened them again, and there were still six men. That would be the kingdom of God. Gideon is standing in something less than that, and I suspect so were some of us. You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength is saved, her announced to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. What are you controlled by? The voice of faith or the voice of fear because they are in conflict with each other. 22,000 men left while 10,000 remain. That must mean we started with 32,000. Two-thirds of the people ran away at the question, are you scared? They received the same word that you did. Ten times the book of Deuteronomy alone says, do not be afraid. Jesus said, do not be afraid. Nine times in the scripture. They were scared. Why don't we live out the radical gospel? Could it be that three quarters of the people in this room are just terrified of what that means to them? I assure you 22,000 men didn't consider themselves already dead because if they were already dead, they wouldn't be protecting their lives. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will sift them there. Sift them. Where else have you heard that word? 
Satan desired to sift someone. It was Peter. Did you know God sifts too? Satan's looking for who is fit for his purposes. And God is looking for who is fit for his purposes. When the winnowing fork hits your life, will you be grain or chaff? When adversity comes, when struggle comes, had you already been praying three times a day? Or did you have a born-again experience the moment trouble came? I'm okay with born-again experience when trouble came as long as it survives the trouble and lasts into your next mountain come. Sifted. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues, like a dog. Like a dog? God wants people who are like a dog? Play that video, Joy. with joy. This is an x-ray of a dog drinking. That tongue goes down while the eyes look forward. It curls backwards towards his chin and it pulls water up into his mouth. This allows a dog to be looking at the water, I'm sorry, drinking the water while looking for predators. God wanted to see when the men got to the water. He wanted to see whether they got down on their knees and submerged their face in self-indulgence. Turn that light back on. Or whether they kept in battle stance and pulled water to their mouth, heads on a swivel, looking for the enemy because they didn't come to drink water. They came to fight. How much of the world do you want, friends? You have to drink water. If you don't drink water, you'll die. There are some things that you must have and your father knows that you need them. But is your life about obtaining them? Are you like the dog that keeps his eye on the prize and takes only what he needs to survive? God wanted to win a battle and he didn't want to do it through their extensive means. He wanted the kind of men that took only what they needed to survive and kept their eye on the enemy. What kind of soldier are you? The kind that's found in the mess hall. The kind that sleeps all day during war. 
or the kind that would give away his bullets and use a bayonet because you enjoy the conflict with the enemy. You know the story. You know what happens. They go out and they overcome the Midianites. Where was Gideon when the angel first spoke to him? He was hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat. But that angel saw a mighty warrior in him. And he called him in Hebrew, Gibber Ha'il. He said, Almighty oh, warrior, he called it out of him. I'm telling you that the job of the fivefold ministry is to call something out of you that lies dormant. Amen. It's submerged like a face in water. It can't keep its eyes on the target. Because thirst is just so great for the things of this world. Do not love the world or anything of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Did you hear that? The boasting of what he has and does. Let me show you around my house. You know what I just bought my children? Comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God forever. That was 1 John 2, 15 through 17. So let me ask, we've all done this math at some point or another, 32,000. We take away 10, we're at 22,000. We end up with only 300, which means 9,700 more left. It's less than 1%. 0.9375%. From what they started with. The Lord begins to sift this group. What would be left? I pray every man, woman, and child who's in this seat would be left. But that choice is yours. It's not really mine. It's the same choice Jesus had. To give your life away and save others. Or to save your life and watch them die. We have that choice. I was amazed at what our church has accomplished this year. Cassidy put together a video and I I'm so excited when compared with our peers we did amazing things and when compared with the scripture we haven't scratched the surface that's not time to go get the trophy friends it's time to press on heavenward turn with me to 2 Samuel 9 lap up water like a dog I should probably tell you that in 2 Samuel 4.4, 4, it says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. I know, I told you, go to 2 Samuel 9. I'm reading from 2 Samuel 4.4 4 just to give you some history. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mophibosheth. Another way to say his name is Merib Baal. He who fights with Baal. <laughs> he who contends with Baal. He who decided to pick a fight with the enemy. Why is it always the crippled ones? Why is it always the little guy? Why is it always those who don't really have anything? 
It's almost like God has been sifting the creation, looking for who will trust in his arm and who will trust in man's arm. Are you in 2 Samuel 9? Yes. 2 Samuel 9 will be our last text today. Because I know you're anxious to run out and live this as fast as you possibly can. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? There was an ancient covenant, a covenant between David and Jonathan. Saul's house was under judgment even as we were under judgment, but because of a friendship with the future king of the world. This man is looking to show kindness. Did Mephibosheth do anything wrong to get crippled? Was he four or five years old? He's dropped. Be no different than if Natalie dropped that baby and she won't because she's a good mama. It crippled his feet. You didn't have to do anything wrong, friends. You were born crippled. You were unable to do anything right before the living God. You couldn't walk with Him without limping. You couldn't do it because of your sin nature. And that happened to you before you were even born, and yet you're not a victim. Because you have a choice. The choice is in 2 Samuel 9. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Has God shown you kindness? Who in here is without the mercy of God? Who in here has not had any chance at the favor of God? The call has gone out. To whom can I show kindness? The question is, what do we do when we've received it? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show whose kindness? God's kindness. Do you mean to tell me when you do something for someone, you are showing them the kindness of God? Yes, when you're a shepherd that has been taken from a field and put in a palace, ruling a nation, you know something of the mercy of God, the kindness of God. And so you look for others that you can show that kindness to. Where were you born, friends? When I look around, I see beauty, but I don't see royalty. I bet you got where you are because of the kindness of God. Is your heart to show kindness to someone else? Oh, there gets my heart and my feet just disagree. Crucify them. Pierce them. Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Of course he is. God doesn't call any other God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the healthy, wealthy life of the rich and famous. No. To the poor. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. The king is looking for the cripples. You know what the world calls them? You may have even used the word. I want you to think about this. When you say it quickly, it doesn't sound so bad. Invalid. Say that a little more slowly for me. Invalid. And Jesus says... I will validate them. I will give them the right to become sons of my Father. 
I got a heart to go make people sons of the Father in here. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makur, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. He was just waiting for the opportunity to show reverence to a king. He didn't know that he was welcome and he couldn't get there by himself. How many out there are like that? What were you before God sent his servant to come and find you? David said, Mephibosheth, do you have an exclamation point in your Bible? Is it written in a way that looks exciting? David is excited. He was waiting. He was longing to show God's kindness to someone. Oh, man, when you've received mercy from God, you want others to have that same mercy. Your servant, he replied, do not be afraid. See, once you've accepted the king and the king has accepted you, fear is no longer a part of the equation. Trust is. Faith is. David said to him, For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. It's almost like unmerited favor. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always... What's that say? He doesn't have to wait for the crumbs, friend. Because the king is inviting him. How many out there are the king inviting? And he needs us to go get him. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant? And you should notice, a dead dog like me. God is calling us to live a dog's life. One that doesn't submerge its head in the waters of our thirst. One that takes only what we need from this world. Because we're at war with the prince of it. He's calling holy thieves that will go out and steal the devil's goats and turn them into sheep by the power of the almighty God. He's calling people who are willing to die. Dead dogs that they might become sons. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything. What have you been given, friends? You have been given everything. That belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. I still believe there's some empty spots at the king's table. I think that we need that point nine three seven five percent that is not scared, that is not seduced by the world, that will see themselves like a dead dog, a lap dog, to go out and get Mephibosheth. That choice is ultimately up to you. The way this works is the King of Glory will empower you to that end. 
He will not empower you to your own glory. He will empower you to His glory. Where is your heart? What do you want? Why don't we stand to our feet and answer that question? Gideon did when he left with those 300 men. Somebody had a dream. And in the dream he saw a battle plan. The 15th verse, I think. He hadn't fought the battle, but he saw it's end. Oh, he didn't see all the details. He just saw something that pointed to victory in a dream. So we worship God for the victory. When we come together and we worship, you know what we're worshiping Him for? The victory for the next battle that we haven't even fought because we know how it ends. It's almost like being certain of something you cannot see. Y'all join hands with the people around you like we were a family.